Welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week, I talk with farmers and producers, industry, the science community, and policymakers to hear their views and opinions on matters relevant to both our rural and our urban communities. This week on Factum Agri, an interesting interview I did with Professor John Hickford from Lincoln University on sheep performance and cold tolerance. Let's have a listen. Hello, John. Thank you for talking with me today. Thanks, Angus. It's good to, good to talk. Please, can you tell me about the work that you do? Okay, so uh, I'm a research scientist at uh, Lincoln University, and uh, my emphasis uh, over the years has been on uh, breeding and genetics, uh, livestock, cattle, and sheep. And uh, we focused on a variety of things from uh, foot rot uh, resilience through cold tolerance to specific diseases uh, uh, such as microphthalmia and dermatosporaxis. One we're working on at the moment is trying to take the horns off cattle. We've got uh, gene tests we've, we've developed uh, for poldness and uh, we're working with that uh, in the uh, terminal sire industries in the cattle so that if you use a terminal sire, um, you always get polled calves coming out of the cows regardless of what cow you use. And so, you know, we want to get away as much as possible from having um, disbud uh, cattle because of the one well, it's a horrible thing to do and, and, and two it's costly so yeah lo- lots on the go um, and, and, and I suppose finally we work on wool too and uh, some fantastic results through the other day with some Romney wool that is just magic and you don't you don't often hear people say this, that about crossbred type wools but this is fantastic Romney wool and uh, if we could get more of that across New Zealand uh, we'd be a lot better off than we are currently with strong wool prices so lots on Today we're talking about sheep and in particular improved performance in regard to lambing percentage improvements, lamb growth rates, and I'm quite interested in that you mentioned cold tolerance in sheep. Is there one particular breed of sheep that is better in terms of their progeny survival rates when faced with severe cold conditions? And if there is, why is that? Yeah, look, it's a good question. I mean, first of all, I will acknowledge the farmers down in Southland. Um, they've done it hard, and um, it's it's probably the worst storm in 10 years, the the last one, of course, was when the Stadium Southland's roof collapsed under the snow. Probably not as bad as in that they got over two weeks of not just cold, but driving southwesterly rain too and, and severe flooding. So hopefully they don't have that coming up next. But uh, getting, back, getting back to the question of sheep and breeds, there are um, breeds where you tend to see better survival overall and increased lambing percentage, and it's for a variety of reasons. Some breeds um, are, are not as good in terms of mothering ability, so it, it's it's a bit sad. But you have to point your finger at the merino sheep. Um, you know, whilst we like to think of them as hardy animals and can get by up in the high country, um, they're not great mothers. So um, if they're going to pressure, they can dump their lambs, walk away, and uh, that can lead to lamb losses. And the lambs themselves for merinos are lighter, smaller lambs. They don't have the the uh, resilience that you might see in a crossbred type sheep. Go- going to the crossbred type sheep, um, I won't I won't pick breeds, but um, you, you, if you take your key crossbred um, sheep, they tend to be um, developed for hardiness. Um, we don't tolerate um, soft lambs in New Zealand. We use these, uh, you know, some people call it easy care, but low input systems we expect used to be out there uh, on pasture 
lambing without assistance. And um, we accept that there will be a, a, a number of lamb losses in a, in a bad weather event as a consequence, but we don't feel we can afford to go to anything other than that. So we're trying to get um, sheep as resilient as possible to cold challenges and our main maternal breeds Breeds like the Romney and the Perrindale and the Coopworth um, work on those um, challenges. Mortality rates are connected through feed availability as well, but is there a connection between lambing percentage, cold tolerance and survival rates? For example, the higher the lambing percentage, the less resilient at a gene level a lamb might be? It's, it's not really a gene level. Um, we, we, we strive to improve our um, lambing performance and, and get a higher lambing percentage. And, we, and we're doing that. And it's, one of, it's one of the great achievements of New Zealand farming. And we don't take a pat on the back enough, but uh, we've seen uh, lambing percentages increase and uh, that's, along with growth rate and increases in uh, carcass meat yield, have uh, really made our industry super efficient. Um, if you if you look at the causes of death, though, um, you find it's it's a complex thing. There's no single major cause of death other than in these really serious weather events like we've had in Southland. One thing we do have, which um, we, we see reasonably common when you commonly when you um, get large numbers of lambs, is we get more dystocia. Now people think of dystocia or birthing difficulties as being associated with large lambs, and uh, we haven't, in my experience, seen a lot of that um, in our study. We, we've looked at a lot of lambs and lamb deaths at the time, and we don't see large lambs. And I think that reflects the fact that, again, we've developed maternal genetics in a way that a seven or eight kilogram or even heavier lamb can come out and not get stuck. What's more, with increased levels of, t- of twinning, you're less likely to see these super big lambs that might get stuck on the way out. But, you know, we talk about feto-maternal ra- uh, ratio or the size of the lamb to the back end of the ewe. And uh, I think we've got that quite well sorted out in our crossbred type sheep. Going the other way, though, to, to triplets, um, there is certainly an effect where we see triplets dying and I think there's two key reasons there. One is you tend to get um, more sort of entanglement as they come out and the sheep's uterus is sort of ideally set up for two lambs that's strongly horned so two clear parts to it and you sometimes get a third lamb sort of stuck in the middle there and you can have three legs sticking out from three different lambs at once uh, as the ewe's trying to birth and that entanglement um, can lead to the death of the ewe and all three lambs so it's one of the things to be worried with with high fertility genetics the other thing is that typically as you get more and more lambs the size of those lambs um, decreases so once you get down to lambs that are sort of under three and a half kilograms you're in a really dangerous zone in terms of survival Um, small change in the weather something like that and those lambs are far more prone to to death so you know lamb size lamb lamb birth weight if you want to call it that is critically important and there's a sort of balance between birth weight and um, the number of lambs produced Mm. can we handle triplet lambs yes i think we can but um we're going to have to work on that sort of thing from the point of view of as i said the the um the way that the lambs come out we can't tolerate lambs that get 
entangled on the way out. It will be sort of self-selecting. But we also have to think the other way too, that you know, really small lambs coming out um, are more prone to death and they don't grow as fast. And that's the other thing is that, you know, it, it, the birth weight is a really um, good predictor of weaning weight. So small lambs at birth um, are not going to wean at heavy weights and they will become a liability to you later in the season if you run out of grass. So a lot of, a lot of people say, look, we need... Um, Twins reliably all the time, but just want twins. We're not really interested in triplets, and and that's a, a you know, practical sort of comment people say. But obviously, as you increase your twinning rate, you're going to increase your triplet rate as well. So there's a there's sort of a balance. You've got to work it out for your farm what the ideal lambing percentage would be. So lots of things going, you know, happening there. Yeah. And is there a genetic component in particular breeds around lambing percentages? Oh yes, for sure. Yeah. So we we've actually we run gene tests. There's some well-known gene effects. Um, which one's called GDF9, another's called BMP15. They have other names um, that, that we talk about. Um, but yeah, there are known genetic effects that increase fertility. So if you look at the Finnish landrace breed, which um, some people have um, here in New Zealand and have crossed into other breeds, you see this increased fertility associated with that breed. Um, you know, it's not an common for fin sheep to produce four or five lambs and mm. people are trying to cross that into crossbred type genetics to get sheep that have a much higher um, fertility and, uh, and and lambs that survive that aren't too small so there's your um, super fertile things but we've also looked at other genes we've got genes that we think are um, more important in terms how, of how lambs store and utilize energy around birth so when a lamb's born you rely on the fact that it has a good store of brown fat tissue uh, that brown fat tissue um, relies on the ewe being well fed coming up to lambing so if the ewe's not well fed the lamb might have stored a lot of brown fat tissue it can be born quite dopey the, the ewe can have um, sleepy sickness or ketosis and then the lamb hasn't got the energy reserves to um, to get by and, and to get to its feet and get, get that first and sort of critical drink of colostrum and then milk it has less energy if you like so mm. um, you feeding and, and the farmers in Southland are pleasing to see the TV footage of them out feeding use critically important when you get these big cold challenges to keep the feed up and it's got to be really good quality feed. The last thing you want is that you losing condition and burning her own body fat and becoming ketotic and um, they're having an effect on the lambs um, and, and subsequently seeing um, the lambs, you know, less vigorous and, and dying. So, yeah, it's under it's under genetic control. There are breed differences. There are genes that we can capture that increase fertility. And um, that, that technology is available to farmers and I think it underpins that improvement in, well, in part underprints that improvement in lambing percentage that we've seen over the last few years. So there's some good stuff there. So is the health and condition of a ewe prior to lambing or at lambing equally as important or perhaps more important than genetics? Oh, I think so, yes. And I and we stress that one. It's something sort of, sort of the, the one you've always got to go back to, that ewes have to be in good condition. You don't want rapid changes in condition, especially loss of condition over pregnancy so you want your land you want your use sitting around condition score three you shouldn't be able to feel the strong you know, if you run your hand down their spine you don't want to feel lumps you want it reasonably smooth down their spine so they've got that fat on them um, but you don't want them losing that so as you go on in the through the 
um, pregnancy and get up to parturition or the birth of the lambs, you don't want uh, use falling off the pace because it has a consequential effect on the lambs. So it's a it's a danger period as you come up to lambing. Often farmers, if they haven't budgeted well, may be running short of feed, or if you've got a, a, a late start to spring and you don't get the spring growth there that might help those ewes out, or you get a big cold event like we've seen in Southland, then the ewe um, may not get what she needs. She needs high quality feed. Um, you know, low quality feeds will fill her up but they won't necessarily have the energy that she needs to be able to maintain um, the, the, the requirements to, to, to have healthy lambs. And so she might metabolizing her own, she might start metabolizing her own fat. So you, you want a system um, geared towards the sort of danger period over the last two to four weeks of, of um, pregnancy to make sure you've got feed reserves there. You do see farmers um, using glucose and um, in the lambs or using molasses for ewes or having um, reserve barley on hand to feed should there be adverse weather conditions. And um, those are good things, but you know, sometimes baleage and um, silage just won't have the get up and go that you need to give the ewe what she needs if there's a big cold challenge. So ewe condition, ewe feeding, critically important, always has been. Has the welfare of ewes been impacted at all by increased lambing percentages? No, I don't think they have. I think I think the welfare of our um, sheep on the whole is improving. Um, we are learning always to farm with fewer inputs and you know the old saying of a healthy sheep's a productive sheep or something along those lines I think has never been truer so I don't know many farmers that don't understand that basic equation that when your sheep are healthy and well fed they're going to be more productive so factor into that um multiple births and I think um, I don't think there's a, there's a cost to the animal welfare um, we we aren't seeing sort of any adverse consequences that I'm aware of other than as I said with triplets you can get entanglement and you can see um, uh, you know lambs and ewes dying because the lambs just haven't come out they're too caught up in the ewe but uh, again as I said people aren't I haven't seen farmers driving strongly down that pathway of I must have more triplets. Yeah. I'm very cautious about that, especially with younger sheep. So as you look at your hoggets and your rising two-tooths, um, they're a bit more wary about um, you, you know having high fertility in those because you know the, the untested mothers they struggle a bit more relative to a mixed age ewe. So, but I don't I, I don't I don't think there's uh, adverse um, consequences, and it might be beneficial and that you know i don't see as many reports of lambing problems dystocia with single large lambs um mm. perhaps as we did 25 30 years ago so and by how much have improved genetics played a part in improved growth rates in lambs over the last say 20 or 30 years and i mean in terms of increased finishing weights and reduced finishing times Oh, hugely so. And, you know, I, th I think people often say, well, what's the most important trait? I think weaning weight, um, so growth weight rate to weaning is critically important. You know, if you can wean your lambs after 14 weeks, 12 to 14 weeks, and they're weaning at 36 kilograms average weight, uh, you're on the front foot. You've got far more options than weaning and your lambs down at 25 kilograms. It is genetic. Um, the Sheep Improvement Limited or SIL um, EBVs um, are geared around improving weaning weight and they split it into the, the, the 
in two parts. There's the, the growth of the lamb itself, so its own genetic potential to grow, plus the um, milk production of the ewe, and we've improved both. And they're both, um, well, the growth rate in the lamb itself, so the lamb's contribution is moderately heritable, and milk production by ewes is moderate to highly heritable. So um, it's the key trait, um, growth rate, pre-weaning growth rate, key trait, critically important in New Zealand where we're not farming with the benefit necessarily of irrigation to fall back on if we run out of feed, is to get healthy, happy lambs weaned um, prior to Christmas, um, if we can, if, if not in January before everything dries out. And genetics has really delivered. We've, we've, we've achieved that. And we've done that at the same time as we've also increased... Um, meat yield as well so you know you now see people uh, talking about the fact that they can wean 60% of their lambs straight to slaughter so they'll come out and they'll be sitting on an 18 or 18.5 kilogram carcass straight from weaning and uh, you know this is this is a remarkable achievement obviously that has to be a carcass that that the market wants you know we we can't get lambs too lean but um, I think we've made big strides in terms of performance um, and the, you know the, one of the one of the positives one that's coming through that now, and, and it's one that we've got to sing up, uh, speak up about too, is is that um, the faster things grow, the more rapidly you can get lambs to slaughter, and the more meat you produce is beneficial in terms of the carbon footprint mm. of livestock. And so, rapid growth rate is the solution or the panacea to the fact that livestock are always going to produce methane. And so New Zealand, again, can take a pat on its back. Our lamb production systems are particularly efficient in terms of producing meat relative to the greenhouse gas footprint of the sheep that we use. And uh, we're on the front foot internationally for that. So these are positive things. Indeed. John, how important are farmers and growers to New Zealand? Oh, they're critically important. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm... terribly one-eyed as a Cantabria, but I'm also terribly one-eyed as, a, as someone who's worked in agriculture for 30 years. Um, I think it's, um, we, you know, we know this, we know that the urban communities lost touch with farming uh, in many respects. They, they just don't have that connection anymore. Um, we know also that the certain parts of the urban community set very high standards um, now for farmers that they probably don't adhere to themselves in terms of the impact on the environment. And I think a huge part of that urban community also does not understand the importance of the financial contribution that farmers and horticulturists um, make to our export earnings and and providing what you want to call fluidity in our economy. And I think we've we've, we've learned a lot more um, in the... In the last um, few months with COVID-19, we've, we've just come to realise the, the critical importance of farming again. You've, you've heard phrases like lifeblood of the economy being bandied about. And, and I, you know, it's, it's actually pleasing to see as we lead up to an election that um, all political parties, and, and especially the, the two leaders of the main political parties, um, it's on their radar. They're actually mm. aware of what farmers do. I think that that's a, a positive. We haven't necessarily had that understanding from our leadership, political leadership, over the last few years. They've been detached from the important role that farming plays. That's not to say that they're not going to uh, either side create policies and things that will um, create real difficulties for farmers. 
but it's I think farming's back on the political radar and it's it's part of their agenda and their thinking because they know it's allowed us to um, get through the COVID nineteen challenge. Not that not that that challenge is over yet. Um, far more effectively than we may have, um, especially when you look at things like the loss of tourism. So on balance, I think the average New Zealander is starting to get their head around the fact that these guys out on the land and this, you know, we, we bang the figure of about 60,000 around are critically important to the well-being of New Zealand. And Yep, I'm biased. That's a damn good thing, isn't it? Couldn't agree more, John. I thank you very much for your time today. An interesting interview. And as we place one eye on winter, there is plenty in there for the farmer to think about. Thank you farmers of New Zealand, without you, the country would be broke, hungry, and quite frankly, a less inspiring place to live. That's all from me this week. Thank you for listening, and catch you next time.